Our scripture reading this morning is going to be in Romans 3, verses 21 to 28. If you have one of the black Bibles out there provided, it's on page 941. It's Romans 3, 21 to 28. says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? Is it excluded? By what kind of law? By law of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I'm excited this morning to have the opportunity to speak on this passage, because as Leon Morris, a commentator on the book of Romans, has said, this is the most important paragraph ever written. So we come right now to the, what many consider to be not, not just the most important paragraph in the whole Bible, but the most important paragraph that's ever been written, because it's in this paragraph that we finally find the solution to the dilemma that the Bible offers us. And the Bible offers us this dilemma. How can a holy, righteous, just God dwell with sinful, broken sinners and still be holy, righteous, and just? That's the question that this text answers. We've got a God who's holy and just and righteous. We've got people that aren't. So how can those two groups, namely God and people, dwell together and God still be God? Pastor Ted, two weeks ago, introduced our series on the four gifts that we're talking about this Christmas season, Four Gifts Unwrapped, with the gift of faith and repentance. And if you were noticing and following along with Jason's reading, you noticed that three times in this paragraph, faith is alluded to. In verse 22, Paul says that it is through faith in Jesus Christ that the righteousness of God is given to us. It is in verse 25 to be received by faith. That is his death. And then in verse 26... Justification is given to the one who has faith in Jesus. So three times faith is talked about. It's even mentioned in verse 22 a second time where Paul says the righteousness of God is given through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So the first gift in our series, the gift of faith, 
is critical to grasping the second gift, the gift of a new record, which is what we're going to talk about this morning. You can think of faith like a gift certificate. I love gift certificates. If anyone wants to get me a gift certificate, you are welcome to get me one. As long as it's not to Bath and Body Works or someplace like that, you can give those to my wife. But I'll take a general gift certificate to Amazon.com, anything you can... And I fully expect someone to take me up on that. So, But faith is like a gift certificate. It's purchased by someone else, but it represents a tangible gift. It'd be weird to buy the gift certificate, give the gift certificate, never use it for anything. You just got a piece of paper in your wallet or your purse. The gift certificate was purchased by you for someone else, but it represents something else, something tangible. Faith is the gift certificate, but it's meant to connect us to something tangible. That is the gift of righteousness, the gift of a new record. And it's this second gift that we turn to this morning. Notice what Paul says in the passage in verse 24. You are justified by his grace as a gift. There's our gift. The gift of justification. According to Romans 5 verse 15, it's a free gift. And verse 17 of Romans, it's called the free, verse verse 17 of chapter 5 rather of Romans, it's called the free gift of righteousness. So, this gift has to do with being justified or being given a free gift of righteousness. Justification means that God treats us as righteous by counting the righteousness of Christ as belonging to us. The righteousness that's in view here is not the righteousness that is produced by us, but it's the righteousness that is provided to us, that is counted to us, that is given to us as a record Not of our behavior and our performance, but of Christ's behavior and Christ's performance. One author defines this gift of righteousness, because we don't use the term righteousness all that often in our culture. But he defines it as a validating performance record that opens doors. That's what righteousness is. Righteousness is a validating performance record that opens doors for you. And we know about such things. You, you had to get a job. And in order to get a job, you had to provide a validating performance record to open that door. It's called a resume. It is evidence that you are qualified for the position. What about school? Wanted to go to college or get into a particular school. Well, you had to provide a validating performance record to open that door, namely an academic transcript. It's the same with God. We need a validating performance record to open the door to fellowship with God. And it's that performance record that we are going to draw our attention to this morning. God is offering as a free gift to anyone who will receive it, a free gift 
a perfect record of righteousness. And it is a free gift, but it is an expensive gift. We'll see why later. Three, four questions this morning. Why do we need a new record? Second, how does God provide this new record? Third, why will this new record actually open a door? And four, how do we get it? Number one, why do we need this new record of righteousness? Short answer, because our situation's absolutely hopeless. Notice verse 21 to 23 in our text. Romans 3, 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Or as the message translates it, we've proved that we are utterly incapable of living the glorious lives God wills for us. Now this verse, if you have been around a Baptist church for any period of time, you know this verse. Romans 3.23 is right next to John 3.16 in the Bible of verses that you've probably heard. But while we often think about the first half of that verse, for all have sinned, we rarely think about the second half of that verse. What in the world does it mean to fall short of the glory of God? I mean, we just take that as a given when we hear the verse. We're like, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But that's not an easily explainable verse. What does it mean to fall short of the glory of God? Well, the Greek word is literally to lack something. To fall short is to lack, to not have what you're supposed to have. And I was taught several years ago that the best explanation for Romans 3.23 is Romans 1.23. So would you look at 1.23 with me? We'll start at verse 22 so we don't jump in mid-sentence. Claiming to be wise, talking about people in their sin, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So the picture is here of a gift exchange. Now, when I was working retail back in high school, the day that I didn't look forward to the most, or I think dread is probably too hard of a word, but that I wasn't looking forward to, believe it or not, not the day after Thanksgiving. It was the day after Christmas. Because it was then that rookie clerk that I was, I got assigned to that great place called customer service. And it was there that the lines began to form for people to bring back with their receipts sometimes gifts that they no longer wanted or presents or whatever the case may be. And we would give them a exchange for it, oftentimes money back. And what is being pictured here by Paul 
is we are being offered the glory of God. And instead of taking it, we are exchanging it. We're giving it back for something else. God is offering us himself and we're not interested. And that's a slap in God's face. The most perfect, glorious, loving, merciful, gracious, holy, just, satisfying being in the universe is offering himself to you. No thanks. Because this world's got some stuff. And there's some glory here. So we've traded in God and our purpose to be rather, let me say this again. We've traded in God and his purpose to be his image, to display his glory for the world and what it offers for the display of our glory. The universe, if you didn't know, is all about God. God created the universe to display his glory, and we exist for that reason too, since we're part of his creation. The reason there is so much dysfunction and misery in this world is because the world is in rebellion against the very purpose of the world. If God creates the world with the intention that it would display his glory, and the human race is intent on glorifying everything else but God, we should expect a great upheaval and malfunction in the way the world operates. Shouldn't we? We should. The essence of sin, then, when Paul says, for all have sinned, the essence of that is to consider God and his glory, and instead of loving him and valuing what he offers, to trade it in at the store for a life apart from him. A life where we get to be little gods. Instead of taking God up on his offer to play a supporting role in his great drama of the universe. We prefer to be lead actors in the story called my life. With God, of course, in a walk on cameo on Sunday mornings. Everyone is in trouble, sinful, and separated from God. That is Paul's big point in Romans 1.18, right up to this verse. We are all, according to this passage, spiritually enslaved, spiritually dead, and spiritually condemned. And that's true for all human beings, moral and immoral, religious and irreligious, without any exception. We are all sinful, guilty, inexcusable, and speechless before God. This is, all, this is the case for the unrighteous, those who break the rules. That's what Paul argues in Romans 1, 18 through 32, the first chapter of the book of Romans. We know these kinds of people, the irreligious and immoral. Paul describes them as marked by ingratitude, worldly wisdom, misplaced worship, misuse of our sexuality, debased mind, filled with evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, gossip, slander, insolence, hatred of God, pride, disobedience to parents, foolishness, faithlessness, heartlessness, ruthlessness. Those people, the bad people. But Paul makes the case in chapter 2 that the good people are in just as much trouble. 
The self-righteous, the religious, the moral, because they're marked not by those things so much, but by judgmentalism, hypocrisy, performance orientation, valuing of God's will and approving of what God approves of, being a teacher of others, but being marked by an inconsistent practice of it, hidden behind a religious veneer while stealing, committing adultery and doing very things we claim to be against. And so to both the religious and the irreligious, to the moral and the immoral, Paul sums it up in verse 19 and 20, the two verses right before our passage. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So this is our condition But it's not just our sinfulness that's the problem. It's what our sinfulness draws out of the nature of God that's the problem. That's the problem. The biggest problem in the universe, brothers and sisters, is not our sin. The biggest problem in the universe is the wrath of God against human sin. That's the big problem. The holiness of God is being ignited by our sin. The righteousness of God is being ignited by our sin. That is Paul's point in Romans 1.18, where he says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And that's true for the immoral that he's going on to describe, but it's also true for the moral, as he says in chapter 2, verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. That is the big problem. This is our condition. We are in sin and under wrath. And that's precisely why we need a new record. And why Romans 3.21 is a tear-inducing, hope-renewing, celebration-igniting breath of gospel air. As it's intended to be. Over against our sinfulness and the wrath that that it deserves, we hear this. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested. And he's not talking about the righteous wrath of God. He's talking about this free record, this gift of righteousness, which will be made clear in the coming verses. Over against the unrighteousness of some and the self-righteousness of others, Paul offers the righteousness of God. And this is the only righteousness that will save us from our sin and God's wrath. And here's the good news. There is a righteousness that can be ours that is not ours. That is not our own. It can be ours, but it doesn't belong to us. There's a righteousness that's available as a gift that doesn't have to be earned. There's a righteousness that we can have in spite of our sin and condemnation. And so that leads us to our second question. How does God provide this new record? Of righteousness. And the answer is in verse 24 and 25. He says in verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, we pick up our text there, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, 
whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Two, two key words there that we want to unpack because it helps us understand where this righteousness comes from. Redemption and propitiation. You see two of those words. If you're using one of our Bibles, um, you'll see it. Redemption's in verse 24. Propitiation is in verse 25. Let's take those one at a time. Paul says that this free gift comes through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now he's borrowing from the language of the marketplace here. We're not, we don't use the word redemption all that often, but if you were living in the great depression and you needed money, you would know what redemption's all about because you would know what pawn shops are all about. And what they did, what you would do is if you needed some money, you'd go hawk a watch. And as long as you were going to come back in the, in three weeks or six months or whenever they decided to keep it before trying to sell it, you could come back and redeem it. You could come up back and release it out of the pawn shop slavery that it's in. And that's the idea of redemption. And if you, if you think about it, what have we talked about as the main problem that we have? The problem that we have is our sin and God's wrath against it. Well, redemption then is getting us out of that situation. It's, it's putting us out from under the wrath of God and under and in the grace of God, the kindness of God, the favor of God. And that's why he says in verse 24 that we're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So it's Jesus's death and in Jesus's death that our bondage to sin and condemnation that we deserve is broken. And we are released from our obligations to receive wrath and judgment. We get redeemed. Our debt gets paid. Now, how can God do that? Answer in verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. This is God's idea. God put us in the situation and God gets us out of the situation. This is not Jesus, the loving son, twisting the arm of his reluctant, angry dad to get him to like some people. This is the heart of God that is as equally full of righteous wrath as holy love, as mercy and grace. And when God sees us in our sin, his wrath is provoked, but his love is provoked. How do you solve that? He's a complex being that is equal wrath, equal love. So he has to find a way to satisfy his wrath so that his love can be fully released and enjoyed. And that's what the word propitiation means. It means a sacrificial act by which someone becomes favorable to someone else. That's what it is. And this is so different from pagan ideas of propitiation. The pagan idea that we can somehow burn a dove on a piece of rock and assuage the wrath of God. That we can make him, we'll just do enough stuff. I'll cut myself, God. I'll cut it. See my blood? This is not, this is God himself providing a way to be rescued from his own wrath. This is God himself Saying, my divine love for you 
is going to triumph over my divine wrath towards you my, my, by my divine self-sacrifice for you. And that's the gospel. So through Christ, God redeems us through offering Christ to die in our place under his judgment for our sins. And that's how we get the new record. Now, third question, why, why will this open the door? Remember, I defined righteousness as a validating performance record that opens doors. So why is it this act that will open the door to heaven? Why is it this act that will open the door to fellowship with God again? Why is it this act that will remove our sin and, and satisfy the wrath of God against it? Why is that act going to do it? And Paul answers that question in verse 25 and 26. This, let me just throw this out there. This is something that we as Western American Christians don't even think about. We don't even ask the question. Has it ever troubled you? That when the gospel has been preached and it says, Jesus will forgive you. He will wipe all of your sins away. And you don't stand up and say, that's wrong. That's wrong. We just take it as a given. But there is something that in this text, in verse 25 and 26, that Paul wants to open up for us to show the glory of why this will work. Why Jesus' death for us will be that validating performance record that will open the door to God to, for us and relationship with him. He says in verse 25, this was to show, that is the death of Jesus. Verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. That's the cross. That's the cross. So this, the cross, why Jesus on the cross, hanging on the cross, why? This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Now, it is absolutely true that the cross was a demonstration of the love of God. First John 4, 9 and 10. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and offered his son as the propitiation for our sins. It's absolutely true, gloriously true that the cross is an evidence that God truly loves us. But it's also an evidence of something else, that God is holy and righteous. And that's what Paul is bringing up here. Now, he's not talking about here. Let's just be very clear. He's not talking about God's righteousness here in the same way that he's talking about it in verse 21. In verse 21 and 22, he's talking about the gift of righteousness. And here he's talking about God's nature, God's righteous nature. So the question is, is why was God's righteousness called into question? Why was it, why was it ever an idea in God? In, why was it ever, why did the righteousness of God need to be proven? Why did God have to prove himself to be righteous? And the answer is because he kept forgiving people in the Old Testament without any punishment for their sins, or at least rare instances. Take, for instance, David. Okay? 
Remember David's sin? He committed adultery with Bathsheba. So David had committed the sin of seduction and adultery. He had also committed the sin of arranging murder of Bathsheba's husband Uriah in battle. The baby died. Bathsheba got pregnant, had the baby, the baby died. But even if the child lived, it would have been recognized as a bastard, never knowing the man who was his mother's husband because his mother's husband died because David was trying to play it off as Uriah's. He sinned against the military high command because he corrupted them in order to have Uriah bumped off. He sinned against his own family and betrayed them. He sinned against Israel as their leader and betrayed the nation who had recognized him as their chief officer. And in Psalm 51 verse 4, he says that against God and God alone has he sinned. You know what happened with that whole situation? All that mess of that sin? Nathan the prophet comes, fingers him, gives him a parable about a sheep. David realizes he's been found out. And he says, don't worry, God's put away your sin. You will not die. It's that kind of stuff in the Old Testament that's a problem. Because we read stuff like that and God's just picking up the rug of the universe and just kicking the sin underneath it and dropping it and say, just ignore that. Just ignore it. I know it's there, but just ignore it. I mean, I'm not a big deal. Uriah's not a big deal. Military high command isn't a big deal. The baby's not a big deal. Bathsheba's not a big deal. My David's family isn't Israel's not a big deal. Just just pass it over. And it's that kind of stuff over the centuries and over the centuries, God being merciful and and forgiving sin that brings into question, is God really righteous? Is God really just? Is he a is he really holy? I mean, does he really care about crimes that are committed? against him and other people? Does he really care about his glory being exchanged? And the cross cries out, yes, he cares. Because look what our sin did to God's son. It cries out, look at what our sin costs God. His only begotten son on a cross under eternal wrath. That's what it costs. And so we're meant to look at the cross and not just rejoice in the love of God, but recognize also the righteousness of God that for years, God's people committed sin that God left unpunished. There was no adequate retribution for the sins God's people committed before Christ's death. And since God left those sins unpunished, it might seem like God would never punish sin. But in Christ's death, God was offering a loud shout to the entire universe that he's just and that all sin must and will be punished. And so there's something even bigger at work in the cross than just our individual salvation. God is 
vindicating himself. He is demonstrating that he is righteous. And do you know why this is such massively good news? Because God is absolutely for sure 100% righteous when he says you're forgiven. And that is massively good news. Because God's never going to go back on his righteousness. He's absolutely just in forgiving you in Christ. 100% just. Now here's, here's an, another verse that we say a lot, but maybe don't appreciate as fully as we need to. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. That's meant to be encouraging. How often do we just think about the faithful part? He's so faithful to continue to forgive me. Amen. He's also just to do so, and you should be happy about that. He's just because it should bother us that he's not just in forgiving sin apart from Christ. But in Christ, God is absolutely just to do it. So God, that means God would be unjust to not forgive you in Christ. So when you confess your sins and you rely exclusively and only on the blood and righteousness of Christ for your eternal acceptance with God, God is unjust to say no to you. Unjust to say no. If you care, which most of us do immensely. So God would be unjust to condemn us if we're trusting in Christ. And the justice of God then is the foundation and ultimate security of our salvation. And so the original intention of God then was to create us to glorify him, right? So God's method of salvation must be consistent with that purpose as well. It must be a salvation that brings honor to him. It must be a, a salvation that puts all the credit here on him. And what the death of Christ does and what this method of giving us a new record of righteousness does is it puts the credit where it belongs. It exalts God and it lays us low. It says that our salvation is all and exclusively of God in Christ. And the only thing we contribute to it was a sin that makes it necessary. So we have no ground for boasting. All the work was done by another. And that's why Paul says in verse 26 and 27, it was to show his righteousness at the present time, the time of Christ's death, so that he, God, might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. We have no grounds for boasting. No person who receives a new record, boasts about it. I mean, if my kids on Christmas morning receive their presents and they stand up and they say, yes, you have recognized my worth, dad. You have recognized how valuable I am to this family. Someone has finally treated me with the honor and dignity and respect. I deserve. I say, sit down, son. All those gifts are going back. Right? Because it's, it's incompatible with receiving a free gift to boast about it. And that's what Paul is making an argument for in this passage. It's completely incongruent. We can't boast because we didn't earn it. And the ultimate reason then why this new record will open the door for us is because it's the measure most consistent with God's goal for the universe, which is to glorify him. And that's why it will open a door. It's consistent with God's justice 
It's consistent with God's glory. Last question, how do we receive it? And I'm not going to spend much time here because Pastor Ted talked about it two weeks ago. And we've already mentioned it three times in the passage. We receive it by faith. Notice again, verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So it's for everyone, but it's not for everyone unless they believe. And it's not for everyone unless they believe in Jesus Christ. Verse 25, to be received by faith. Verse 26, to the one who has faith in Jesus. Now notice the emphasis on Jesus. Having faith in God vaguely justifies no one. Because the righteousness that we are given is the righteousness of God in Christ. So we have to receive and have faith in Christ to get connected to Christ and his righteousness being counted to us. So when we believe we are joined by faith to Jesus and God views us surrounded by the righteousness of Christ, we are in Christ inside of Christ by faith. So to use another Christmas winter metaphor, I'm really trying hard to do that. Be consistent with the season Faith is like the shovel, snow shovel, okay? And Christ is the snow. The snow shovel is useless without snow. I mean, I don't know what else anybody uses a snow shovel for, but I better not say it because I'm going to get myself in trouble. But a snow shovel is used for one thing, shoveling snow. It's even called the snow shovel. So the snow shovel just sits in the garage or out in the shed or out back somewhere or at the store, unless there's snow. But when snow comes, snow shovels are nowhere to be found anywhere in Owensboro. And so it is useless to speak of faith without Christ. Because faith is the snow shovel, but Christ is the snow. And unless that snow shovel goes into the snow, it's worthless. And so it is faith without Christ. As Mark Dever puts it, Christ is not one among many options. You cannot have him as just one part of a mixed portfolio of religious trust. He's all or nothing. And when he's all, we get everything. So in order to receive this righteousness, we must place our trust exclusively in Christ alone. Now, I know I'm speaking in many ways to people who rejoice in this gospel, who love this gospel, who know this gospel, who believe this gospel. And I hope you've been reaffirmed and re-encouraged this morning. But I know there are a few of you out here who are a little bit skeptical about this whole thing and haven't yet transferred your trust exclusively and only to Jesus Christ. And I want to give you some reasons why some people don't do that and why believers do. Okay, for 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 some here who are not in Christ, not yet believers, your sin and the wrath of God is still a theoretical idea to you. And that's one reason why you don't trust Christ. So if sin, if the idea of sin is offensive and the idea of wrath of God is offensive, which both are offensive to the natural American, 
then I would just say, don't, don't, don't stiff arm God. Okay. And, and, and because this, this, this is not some sort of exclusive thing. This is a situation which everybody's in. We all are in. And I would encourage you to read scripture. And I would encourage you to, um, to pray and speak to God. Possibly you don't think God is being serious. I mean, after all, sin doesn't get punished. You know, you say God's this big, wrathful, sinful, you know, sin-hating God, and he punishes sin. Well, I don't see a lot of sin getting punished. Well, he didn't in the Old Testament either. They didn't in the Old Testament. There's two times in the Bible that sin gets massively punished. The cross of Christ and the return of Christ. That's the point of this passage. The cross of Christ is the demonstration of the righteous wrath of God against human sin. Now is the day of grace. Come anyone who wills, come take of this gift. And then at the end, there'll be another. But just because God doesn't seem to be taking sin seriously right now, you should look back and forward, not present for that validation. You should look back at the cross and forward to the second coming of Christ. And that will give you ample encouragement, I believe, to take God seriously when he talks about how he feels about human sin. And sometimes we have to realize that the wrath of God is not just active, it's passive. That's Romans 1. That's a scary passage. It's when God demonstrates his wrath, not by pouring it on somebody, but by just stepping away from people. That's the scariest form of the wrath of God, where God just leaves people alone. Oh, how I pray God never leaves any of us alone. Never, ever, 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 ever. Or possibly you believe there's really some other way, and this is one way. This is one way. This is a way that Christians get their kind of... uh, Strokes and help and comfort and consolation and counsel. But there's other ways out there, you know. Well, if there's another way, it's a shame what happened to that Galilean man. It's a shame. And we should wake up screaming in the middle of the night. That stuff like that happens in our world. Not to mention the billions of other atrocities that have gone on through the centuries as well that are equal to that. Not spiritually speaking, but physically certainly. And here's why many of us have embraced this. Because sin and wrath are no longer theoretical for us. They're intensely personal realities. We recognize that our unrighteousness and our self-righteousness isn't worth a hill of beans to God. And we finally owned up to it. And we finally said, okay, humbled by grace, we have come to the place where we've said, you know what? This is true and this is glorious and this is liberating and this is freedom. And we've stepped into it by God's grace because it was the gift of faith. Keep that in mind first. We're not bet. We don't have any reason to boast about our belief either. That was a gift. 
Also, by grace, we've understood that the cross is proof that God is serious. We look at the cross and we see the love of God and the righteousness of God and the seriousness of God. And finally, we've recognized that there's no other way that honors God. Really, all you've got, if, you, if you've got the options of how to get to God, you've got man options and you've got God options, right? Well, there are, there are huge amounts of the man option. The man option is everywhere. You know, improve yourself, try harder, become a better person, stop doing all the bad things, be a good person, go to church, join a civic organization, give some money every now and then. You know, that all kinds of man-made options. Pray this many times a day, follow this dietary restriction. Just be pluralistic and believe, be tolerant. There's all sorts of those options, but then there's one option that if we're going to be consistent with the universe, we have to embrace. Because from the perspective of the universe, it's created for the glory of God. Therefore, anything that God does must be consistent with worship going to him and not to some person. So all these options are bunk and void because they bring glory to the person who's doing them. That's why Christianity has to be right. Because nobody else comes up with stuff like that. Let's find, a, let's find a way to get to God that ascribes all glory and boasting to God alone. That would be pre-sin. <laughs> I mean, the evidence of sin in the world is that people try to be good apart from God. The evidence of sin in the world is that people try to scoot around and get around ways to only glorify God in the way they live or behave or as the object of their trust. So I encourage you to take this free gift this morning. It's the best Christmas gift that you could ever receive because it's permanent. It's a righteousness it's a transcript. It's a record that has already been worked out, signed in the blood of Christ, validated by the resurrection of Jesus, received in heaven for anyone who will just give yours and take his. And that's, that's it. And when we do that, all our sins are wiped away. We get that free record of righteousness and we are set on a path to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Let's pray. Father, oh, how we thank you for this free gift that you have given, this righteousness that has been manifested in our time at this point in salvation history. We thank you that we have been born to hear it, and thank you that many of us have been born again to receive it. And for those of us who have yet to receive it, pray this morning that they would take it with great joy and receive it. That they would receive your free gift of righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen.